Okay, so we are entitling this series, The Three Gifts. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 2. We're going to be looking at that tonight. You don't have a study guide this evening. I had designed and I had created a study guide for it. Um, but I don't have it tonight. I didn't bring it. And here's the reason why. Because a lot of times at Christmas... Is this on? Is this working well? A lot of times at Christmas, we get so wrapped up in lights and in presents, and we get wrapped up in parties and food and music and Christmas movies and specials, that sometimes we get looking all over the place. We just forget that Christmas is right here and so I think for this series we're just gonna be right here there's enough glitz and glam all over for us to be distracted so for our time here on Wednesday nights for this series I just want to be right here now, I am going to be reading to you Matthew chapter 2 in a little bit, but Matthew chapter 2 picks up in a spot, it picks up in a place where, um, where if you don't know the Christmas story, it's a little confusing. How many of you know the Christmas story from the Bible? Many of you have heard it before. Some of you go through it every year. If you're like our uh, family, you go through it more than one time a year. So, for those who might not know the Christmas story, uh, the main one from Scripture comes from Luke chapter 1 and 2. And I've got a video that's going to kind of catch you up with Luke chapter 1 and 2 so that you know the story from the Bible and how it's laid out. And then we're going to pick up in Matthew chapter 2. So, whenever you guys have it uh, pulled up back there, the Gospel of Luke Luke investigated many of the earliest eyewitnesses of the life of Jesus and then composed this account. And the story begins up in the hills of Jerusalem, the place where Israel's ancient prophets said that God himself would come one day to establish his kingdom over all the earth. In the city is the temple run by the priests, and one of them, named Zechariah, was working in the temple when he had a vision that freaks him out. An angel appears and says that he and his wife will have a son. What's this all about? Well, Zechariah and his wife, we're told, are very old. They've never been able to have children. And Luke's setting up a parallel here with Abraham and Sarah, the great ancestors of Israel, because they too were very old and could never have kids. Yet God gave them a son, Isaac, which is how the whole story of Israel began. And so Luke's implying here that God's about to do something that significant for this people once again. The angel tells Zechariah to name the son John. And then he says that this son's going to fulfill a promise of Israel's ancient prophets, that somebody would come one day to prepare Israel to meet their God when he arrived to rule in Jerusalem. Because right now, Jerusalem is ruled by the Romans. Yeah, specifically, it's governed by a man named Herod, who's a puppet king under the Roman Empire. And so the Jewish people wanted nothing more than to be free and govern themselves in their own land. 
So this is shocking news. Everything's going to change. God's on his way. But how is he going to arrive? Well, to find out, Luke takes us out of Jerusalem and then up into a small town in the hills of an out-of-the-way region called Galilee. And there we find a young woman named Mariam, or we call her Mary. She was engaged to be married. And then an angel appears to Mary, saying that she's going to have a son. She's supposed to name him Jesus, which in Hebrew means the Lord saves. And he will be a king like David, who will rule over God's people forever. And then Mary asks, okay, well, how is this possible? Because I'm a virgin. And she's told that the same Holy Spirit that brought life and light out of darkness in Genesis chapter 1 is going to generate life inside her womb. God is about to bind himself to humanity through the conception and the birth of the Messiah. And so Mary goes from some backwoods no-name girl to the future mother of the king? Exactly. In fact, she sings a song about how this reversal of her own social status points to a greater upheaval to come. Through her son, God's going to bring down rulers from their thrones and exalt the poor and the humble. He's going to turn the whole world order upside down. So when Mary was really pregnant, she and her fiancé, Joseph, had to go down to Bethlehem. Yeah, there was a decree across the Roman Empire about new taxes, and so everybody had to go get registered in the town of their family line. There were so many visitors in Bethlehem, they can't find a guest room. And so the only place they can find is a spot where animals sleep. Now nearby were some shepherds with their flocks, and an angel appears, which, of course, freaks them out. But they're told to celebrate because tonight in Bethlehem, a savior has been born. Yeah, they're told to go and find this baby, and they'll know that it's the Messiah because he's going to be wrapped up and laying in a grimy feeding trough. Yeah, which is pretty gross. Totally. And then these shepherds, who aren't very clean themselves, they go and find the newborn Jesus in this really dingy place, and their minds are blown. They go home wondering what on earth is about to happen. And this is all really strange. I mean, if God's really coming to save the world, this isn't how you would expect him to arrive. Born in an animal shelter to a teenage girl, celebrated by no-name shepherds. Exactly. I mean, everything is backwards in Luke's story, and that's the point. He is showing how God's kingdom was first revealed in these dirty places among the poor, because Jesus is here to bring salvation by turning our world order upside down. Okay. Hey, thanks for watching The Bible Project. This is the first in a five... Those are the guys who made the video. Okay. Is everybody familiar with the story? Everybody knows the story. Joseph and Mary go to Bethlehem to be counted, to be taxed. There's a census that's going to be taking place. They're going to be numbering all the people so they know how much money they're supposed to get. They go to Bethlehem, and while they're there, they have baby Jesus. Okay, so that's the story that we're going to be kind of dropped right in the middle of. Now, by the way, this time of year is my favorite time of year. Hands down, it's my favorite time of year. I love Christmas. And uh, not, not in the bus that I drive now. And the bus that I drive now I only pick up about three students. Uh, but in the bus I had before, I picked up 
I mean, well over 70 boys and girls. The bus was full. And I always introduce myself to the new boys and girls as I'm Pastor Josh. I'm pleased to meet you. And I hope that we have a good year. So they knew me as Pastor Josh. Now, there was a very big reason for that. One of them is, is if I work for the county, I am not allowed to tell them about Jesus. But if they know I am Pastor Josh, then when they have a question, guess who they're going to go talk to? Pastor Josh. So I introduced myself in that way for a very intentional reason. And every year around this time, when I'd be driving those 70-something kids, and it would be dark some mornings because I would have just picked them up and they'd be rubbing the sleep out of their eyes and they would look out the windows and they would see houses decorated, lit up, different uh, decorations all over the front yard or on the house. They would hear Christmas music on the radio because I would play the radio for them. They knew that there was something different, something significant about this time of year. And they would ask, Pastor Josh, why do we do this every year? Now, the thing that gets thrown on bumper stickers and the thing that gets said often uh, in, in churches and in uh, Bible studies, and it's a, it's a very easy way of expressing the sentiment of what this time of year is all about. People will say, Jesus is the reason for the season. Have you ever heard that expression before? Jesus is the reason for the season. And that is a very good and true and right thing to say. But you've got to dive a little bit deeper. And that's what we're going to do during this series as we explore the three gifts. We're going to dive into this text, this Matthew text, Matthew chapter 2, and we're going to look at what happened here. So as I mentioned the three gifts, I'm obviously talking about the three gifts from the wise men, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. No surprises there. How many of you have heard that story before? Story of the wise men, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Okay. Let me read it to you from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And I'd really love it if you'd follow it along. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And we're going to hang out here all night. So leave the Bible open. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Let me stop right there. You think Herod has a problem with that? Why? It says Herod the king sees wise men from the east. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? There's no king who likes thinking that there's another king on the horizon. For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod king heard this, he was troubled and all 
Jerusalem with him. That's interesting. We'll come back to that. But why would it be Herod? We understand why Herod would be upset. But why would all Jerusalem be upset? We'll come back to that. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet. This is the prophet Micah, by the way. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Let's break down a few things that we have to ask when we come to this passage of Scripture. It has to do with these wise men. We have to ask the question, who were these wise men? These wise men. We have to ask... Where did they come from and how did they get there and how did they know to show up? We have to ask those kinds of questions. And then we have to ask, why gold, frankincense, and myrrh? So let's unpack these together. First, who are these guys? Who are these wise men? Well, there's another word for it. It's magi. Now over there, a second ago with the TNTers, I said... Magi, and they all gave me a look like, what? Huh? What's Magi? So I made them say it three times fast. I won't do that to you because you're not the children. Wait, did you ask what's Magi? I'm glad you asked. You can go ahead and say it three times for me, please, sir. He said it three times fast. Magi, there's not really an English word for Magi. Magi is more like a tribe than anything else. Now, when you think of tribes, you think of maybe Native American tribes, Indian tribes, Choctaw, Chickasaw, Cherokee Creek. We don't have English words for that. We just recognize the tribe. The Magi were these tribe of people. It was a very ancient tribe. Now, we do get the English word magic from Magi. But these wise men were Magi. Very ancient, very old, very important tribe. Okay, so they're a tribe of men who show up. How does that inform us of anything at all? Well, there's a couple of clues that are going on here. Where they come from, 
says, wise men from the, that's verse 1, wise men from the east came. Alright, now, I know that there's no one here that's too awfully directionally challenged, but when you look at a map, okay, obviously, uh, let me make sure I've got it right for, for my end, you've got west, this is right for you guys, west and east, right? It's, I, I have to have to mess it around in my head because that's opposite for me, all right? So over here to the west, over here to the west, you've got the Roman government. Over here to the west is who? The Roman government. The Roman government, they're the ones who are in charge in Israel at the time, okay? The Roman government, they are the governing force, they are the military force they are the rulers over Israel. But now wait a minute, because we've been introduced to Herod the king. So who is Herod the king? If the Roman government who's really in charge, who is Herod the king? What'd you say? It would be a natural thing to think he's the king of the east. But he's actually not. That's a very natural thing to think of, though. He's not the king of the east. He's really no king at all. The Roman government is really the one, are really the ones that are in charge. And they have taken Herod and they've said, you know what, Herod, we can let you be king over this little area called Israel. We'll let you be in charge over here. Herod, this is you. So Herod is not really a king in the strictest sense of the word. He's just a puppet of the Roman government. And at this time in Herod's life, he's kind of old, too. In fact, he's going to die probably less than a year from when this, when this story happens. Maybe, maybe it's, it's right around a year. In any case, they show up from the east. Now, if you've got Rome over here, they're the big government that's in charge, and they've ruled and they've conquered so much. more. Do you know what the next biggest ruling government is? No, no, no. It's Persia. Now, Persia is to the east. Now, why am I telling you this? Because these wise men would have come from the east. In fact, Persia was so big and Rome was so big that they would often go to war with each other. In fact, they had four terribly bloody wars in the history of their time. And when Rome and Persia would go to war, they would meet somewhere in the middle. Well, guess what area was right there in the middle? Israel. So when Herod sees these guys come up there, he's alarmed, he's scared, because there's no reason Persians should be over here unless something's about to go down. Why would the people be scared? Because something's going down. They come from the east. They come from Persia. And they come and they know something that not even the Israelites have recognized. They know that a king has been born. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? 
They know a king has been born. How do they know this? How do these people who are over here in Persia, this eastern kingdom, how do they know about Jesus all the way over here in Israel when Rome, who governs Israel, doesn't even know? How do they know it? These magi were wise men. They were called that for a reason. They were smart. They spent time studying. They spent time learning from all these ancient books, from all these prophecies. Their job was to figure out the things that were important in the world and in the land. In fact, they were so respected that these Persian wise men were king makers. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean no one could be appointed a king in Persia unless these magi show up and they say, you are the king. They were king makers. You could not be recognized as a ruler unless they put their stamp of approval on you. So they're coming from this seasoning, but how do they know that Jesus has been born? Well, they quote a prophet. They quote Micah. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. How do they know this? I'm going to take you back just for a brief second. Remember, we just finished studying up Nehemiah. Remember that? Why did Nehemiah come over to build the wall? Where had they been? Where had the Israelites been? Say it again. Not in Egypt, it's that, but it's that, it, it, well, Egypt is, is one of the areas, but, but, uh, but the larger area. They had been captured. Israel had been in captivity. They had been taken from their homes by Babylon. Babylon had conquered them. Babylon had taken the Israelites out of there. They had pulled them back to Babylon. And among the people who were there was Daniel. A prophet of God. You guys know a story about Daniel. Daniel and the lion's den. Right? That's the same guy. Daniel was such a big deal in Babylon. He became known as such a tremendous and amazing person while under captivity that Daniel actually became the lead head magi in Babylon. And then Babylon was conquered by, who do you think? The Persians. So you've got these guys over here, these magi who have sat under the study of Daniel's teaching about the prophets, about the coming of the Messiah, about the coming of Christ, and they know something. They know that a king is going to be born. A ruler is going to be born. Now, it just so happens that at this time, when the wise men, when the magi made their journey to Bethlehem, it just so happens that there was not a king seated on the throne in Persia. And so these king makers, these magi, who know 
what the prophet Daniel said, that one day there's this king going to rise in Bethlehem. And they were able to do the math. They were able to look at the prophecies of Daniel. They were able to do the math. They were able, they were able to figure out, okay, it's going to be around this time. And not only were they able to do math, then they look over there and they see that there's this star that rises for them in the west. They see this star rising and they're like, there he is. There's the king. There's no king here on the throne in Persia. The star is up there. That's the one that Daniel was talking about. We're going to go over there and we're going to find that king. Now we have some misconceptions about these guys. We think that... How many, do you, how many wise men have you heard there were? Three. Why do we think there were three? Three gifts. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Understand this. There weren't just three wise men. All right? There weren't just three. These guys are kingmakers. They're going into a rival government. If these guys are the kingmakers, they're going to grab soldiers. They're going to grab craftsmen. They're going to grab as many servants as they can. And they're going to go and they're going to find this king because he's going to be pronounced, he's going to have the stamp of approval from these magi, these kingmakers. So understand, not just three lowly guys who walk into Jerusalem, when they show up there, when they, or excuse, when they get into Bethlehem, there could be a hundred, there could be a couple of hundred of them showed up. There are some estimates, as I've read, there could have been a thousand who show up one day and they're saying, where is he who is born the king of the Jews? Now do you see why everybody's blood pressure rises? Do you see why all of a sudden Herod is paying very close attention to what they're doing and so is everybody. They're all looking at what they're doing. And Herod has to figure this out. So Herod, this puppet king of the Roman government, calls them in. Hey, why are y'all here? What are you doing here? And he talks with them. He probably feeds them. He figures out when the star rose. And he says to him, I, I want you to go and I want you to find this child. And then I want you to come back and I want you to tell me where he is so that I can come and worship him too. Does that sound strange to anybody? It should. They go, they find the child, and they bring the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, these are the king makers. These guys are as official, as important, as anyone you're going to ever meet in the Persian Empire. These guys are big deals. And there's a lot of them. With soldiers and servants. 
And they show up. And do you think when they decided they were going to go find this baby, this child, do you think they thought, oh, well, maybe we should, maybe we should take the little guy a present? Oh, uh, what, what do we got? Hey, is that some gold in your closet over there? Why don't you grab that? Oh, look, frankincense. It's just been sitting there for a couple of years. Bring that too. Hey, we've got some myrrh here. Are you using that? Nah, we'll take that too. Do you think it was as, as haphazard as that? No. These gifts meant something. These gifts were intentional. They didn't just arbitrarily bring gold, frankincense, and myrrh they're going to put their stamp of approval on this Jesus. And by giving him these gifts, they are going to declare exactly who Jesus is. Now tonight, we're looking at just one of them. Next week, we'll look at the second, and the following, we'll look at the last. Tonight we're looking at the gold. They come with a gift of gold. Now when you think of gold, who has gold? Is there anybody here who has any gold at all? No? Has anybody here ever seen real gold? No? Some of you have. Anybody have like a, no one has a gold necklace or anything like that? Um... My wife's um, wedding band is uh, it's white gold. It's a very precious metal. It's a very, very desired metal. But who is it that we normally think of who has gold? Kings, what'd you say? Rich people. Fort Knox. You don't just get gold. Okay, like, like my wife has a small little piece of gold that she wears around her finger. Do you look at her and think, well, there's royalty right there? No. Because even though she might have a small piece of gold, when we think of gold, we think of an abundance of gold and we think of a lot of it. And we typically think if someone has gold, then they have great Money, wealth, position, power, all those sorts of things. And it's true here as well. Why did they bring Jesus gold? Because they were saying, you have a position, you have a power that is important, that is grand, that is big. And you need to understand this, that when they gave him gold, they were declaring to Jesus and to anyone else who would see it right there that this child who receives this gold, this little one, is the king of kings. They are putting their seal of approval, their recognition as the Magi, as the king makers, they are pointing their finger at Jesus and saying, there is the king of kings. There he is. And so many times we look at this story and we miss it. Now let me, 
finish up this story for you because it doesn't really end well. It doesn't end well at all. Remember how I said they were warned in a dream not to return to Herod? So they went to their own country by another way. We pick up in verse 13. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. This story ends tragically. And here's the reason why. Because if you recognize, as the wise men did, that Jesus is the King of kings, then understand what that means is that He is the ruler of all. He is the ruler of you, me. He's the ruler over this government. He's the ruler over all things. And if He is the ruler over all things, then guess what other would-be rulers are going to think about that? Do what? The same thing as Herod. They're going to hate it. They're going to despise it. They're going to try to stomp it out, to destroy it. When we come to the story of Jesus at Christmas time, you have to understand that this child, this little one, this baby boy who was born from Mary, he really is the King of Kings. And if he really is the King of Kings, then there's no room in your heart for other rulers. I will make one brief aside. Why do you think Herod killed all the baby boys who were two years old or under. He didn't know which one it was for sure, but why two years old? Because when he figured out when the star rose, remember he said he figured that out from the wise men. He said, okay, I know about how old this child's going to be. We're going to kill anyone that old or young. So at about this time, Jesus was probably around two years old. The wise men weren't there 
at the birth of Christ, but they declared His kingship and His authority when He was still learning to walk. What an incredible and a cool thing. The King of Kings at this time could barely walk. And yet, there is no ruler but Him. Let me pray for us. Most gracious Heavenly Father, thank You, thank You, thank You for Your Son, Jesus. Thank You for the testimony of the wise men and these three gifts that are going to point us to an understanding of who Your Son is. I pray that as we consider the fact that He is the King of kings, it would cause us to worship Him. As we look forward with anticipation to see what the frankincense points us to and what the myrrh points us to, that You would help us to desire to know this Son of Yours, the only begotten Son of Yours. I pray all these things in His name and for His sake. Amen.